This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your host, Julia Magana. Hi, and welcome to EM Pulse. I hope you enjoyed the last podcast on the history of emergency medicine. I know it was really eye-opening for me to hear from that scrappy set of pioneers. They were bold and confident and collaborators. And now today, we are an academic field. We collaborate to do national, even international, multi-center big studies that answer questions the best way that modern science can. And PCARN is an example of that amazing collaborative spirit across the nation to answer questions well. Today, we are going to talk with two authors of Cognitive Function Following Diabetic Ketoacidosis in Children with New Onset or Previously Diagnosed Type 1 Diabetes, published in Diabetes Care in September 2020. Wait, don't tune out. I promise you, this brief review of how high glucose impacts our patients' brains blew me away. It turns out glucose is brain. Take it seriously. Can I have you guys introduce yourselves here? Hello, thank you for having me. This is Simona Getty. I'm a professor of psychology, and I work at the University of California at Davis in the psychology department and at the Center for Mind and Brain. And I'm Nicole Glazer, and I'm a pediatric endocrinologist. I'm professor of pediatrics at uh, UC Davis, and delighted to be back with you, Julia. Yeah, we are so excited. Now, Nicole joined us when we talked about DKA, it's not about the fluids. And we discussed this incredible PCARN study that was looking at the impact of fluid rate and quantity and what type of fluid on kids that have DKA. And she is back to share another really interesting story that came out of this big DKA PCARN study. So, Nicole, tell us a little bit about it. So this was the PCARN Fluid Therapies Under Investigation in DKA, or FLUID was the acronym, um, FLUID Trial, and was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018. In that study, we looked at neurological and neurocognitive outcomes of DKA in children, and specifically, we were interested in the relationship to variations in fluid treatment during DKA. Um, So As you know, in that study, the children were randomized to one of four fluid treatment arms during DKA, and then we assessed mental status during DKA treatment and cognitive outcomes three months later. So the neat thing about this study is that afterwards, we also ended up with this wonderful large database of children with DKA and the cognitive and neurological testing in those children. And so We wanted to capitalize on that and use that to study some other super important questions um, about children with diabetes and and their health care. So, Simona, I think, can tell you a little bit more about what else we did. So we were fortunate to have the opportunity to recruit, in addition to those children that participated in the fluid trial, a comparison group of children who um, had diabetes, but never had exposure to DKA. So we were able to compare cognition, uh, these neurocognitive outcomes in these children with DKA, 
and those who didn't have that experience. And further, among those children who did have DKA, we were able to discriminate between those who had an episode of moderate or even severe DKA from those who actually um, only suffered a milder case. So we could really make a detailed comparison between these different groups of patients who are, we thought, we hypothesized at different risk for neurocognitive complications. I, in ED, don't see too many kids with diabetes who haven't had DKA, so I was impressed that you were able to find that kind of control arm of kiddos who have had, you know, diabetes and dealt with glucose control for a while, as well as those who've had one episode of DKA and those with multiple episodes of DKA, and then you were able to track the severity of those levels of DKA and also the severity of their hemoglobin A1C or their glucose control. Is that correct also, Simona? Yeah, that is exactly what we did. So our sample was large enough in the end, over a thousand children participated in the study, And we were fortunate to be able to separate those who were newly diagnosed with diabetes from those who had a history of diabetes, so came to us with known diagnosis of diabetes. And this is important, right, distinction, because the literature has already shown that those with a history of diabetes may be at risk for a variety of reasons of um, cognitive decline. And so we wanted to see to ask first an important question, are these cognitive declines immediately apparent or soon after the onset of diabetes? And could DKA or a severe episode of DKA in itself be associated with these cognitive declines? And we found evidence that that was the case. So one single moderate or severe episode of DKA was associated with lower memory ability in these children. Moreover, Again, among these children, there was also a little bit of initial evidence that um, those who had uh, more severe uh, DKA indicated by greater acidosis also had a little lower IQ, like intellectual quotient, just, just a few months after being diagnosed with DKA. So that, we thought, was really meaningful, and it, it underscores the importance of really preventing DKA. Um, then the other sam- other part of the sample, the other half of the sample, was a group of uh, children who had a history of known diabetes. And for them, level of glucose control and repeated exposure to DKA independently predicted cognitive outcomes, IQ, suggesting that both of these factors are super important where we are trying to protect cognitive functioning in these children. It floored me to think that just one episode of DKA was impacting the brains of our kids that we see here. You know, I don't think about that when I'm in the middle of treating somebody for DKA or I see a high glucose or poorly controlled diabetic. I don't really think about that, about how is this impacting their brain long term. So you're saying that just one episode of DKA or multiple episodes and poorly controlled diabetes impact the brains of our babies. And that's huge to me. Nicole, what were some of the key points from your standpoint? For us as pediatric endocrinologists and in, well, in general for, for pediatricians, you know, we've known for a long time that uh, type 1 diabetes is associated with, you know, declines in cognitive abilities over time. 
in some individuals. And we've always known that, but what we've been taught um, for eternity really is that this was a result of hypoglycemic episodes, especially episodes of severe hypoglycemia. And our worries and concerns about preventing those episodes all stem from the fact that we thought there is a connection between that and causing these declines in cognition. So now these findings are really kind of a frame shift for us in pediatric endocrinology that what we maybe should be emphasizing more is preventing DKA rather than putting so much emphasis on uh, teaching families to avoid hypoglycemia um, at all costs. Um, Also, from a research standpoint, I think this points us in a really important direction that we need to understand better what it is about DKA and prolonged exposure to hyperglycemia and the interaction of those two that leads to declines in in cognition and, and brain injuries. That is absolutely huge. And I wonder if some of that historical uh, going back to hypoglycemia doesn't come from our own experiences because we could, you know, we go without lunch or breakfast and lunch. I sometimes feel like my brain is a little cloudy as well, but I don't ever experience hyperglycemia and the fog that you have when you're so hyperglycemic. So it's not something that I can relate to. I wonder if that kind of ties into how we got stuck on this for so long. How does this change your approach, Simona, Nicole, to these patients? I hear this kind of shift from hypoglycemia to preventing hyperglycemia. Is there anything else that we need to change our approach in the emergency department and in the pediatric community? You know, as pediatric endocrinologists, um, in the past, we've always tended to try to treat milder episodes of DKA at home with the families. You know, we'll talk to them frequently and have them give frequent insulin injections and oral fluids to try to reverse the ketosis at home, um, because of course, families don't often want to have to come into the hospital. But now I think we're really going to have a different threshold since we don't know if they're home exactly how severe the, the episode might be. And, um, you know, if they're telling us that they have large ketones in the urine at home, I think we're going to have a much uh, quicker trigger as far as saying, okay, yeah, I think you really should go to the emergency department, even if the child says they're feeling not that poorly or the parents think they're looking fairly well. You know, even from the, from the ED standpoint, I'm wondering whether the threshold for admission might change a little bit too, that, um, you know, I think we've often advised if um, the the kids still have maybe a substantial amount of ketones in the urine, but they're drinking well and, um, you know, seem like they're doing okay to go ahead and send them home. But uh, now knowing this information, you know, we don't want things to worsen at home. And, you know, maybe some of those patients that we typically would say, let's, you know, go home and follow sick day rules for diabetes and um, continue the treatment at home, we might end up actually um, admitting them instead. Yeah, there's also one other thought that is raised, I think, by this finding, which is these findings point to this accumulative effect of prolonged exposure to high levels of glucose and risk for DKA over cognition. And so that raises the question and really of what are the factors that might help us on a daily basis uh, maintain a good level of glucose control. And we know that that kind of maintenance is a real complex problem endocrinologists know that even though they repeat to families to keep in check, 
whether or not they succeed is a different question. And so this really points to uh, considering all of the factors that may be lifestyle factors, family dynamics, uh, access to care, that all contribute to the extent to which families and children may be successful at controlling diabetes. Simona, you know, these types of studies that are looking at cognition in children are challenging because there's so many confounding factors. There's so many variables that can impact that. How did you guys account for all of those possible confounders? Well, we were fortunate that we had a very large sample. This is the the largest study conducted to look at the associations between uh, diabetes-related variables and cognition. So that's really helpful. So what we did for every analysis that we conducted, we included as uh, control variables in our multivariate analysis, uh, all of the variables that we thought could be important, including the duration of diabetes, including the um, level of socioeconomic status, which you know is very impactful for cognition, and in this particular case is impactful on the type of care that these children might receive or the level of stress in the family, which we also know to be associated with cognition. And this is really what we do in our research more broadly in psychology when we know that we are dealing with complex phenomena that can only be understood if we really tease apart the various components. And when you teased apart those various components, it really boiled down to it's about the glucose, not about all of those other factors. Is that fair? Yes, it's about the level of glucose control and exposure to DKA. I think it's really important to show that these two factors actually carry their own weight that can be differentiated in these large samples. And that actually is one of the real satisfactory things about the study that we were able to to tease apart these factors, to look at them um, independently. Because they are related in the real world, we know that they occur in the real world. So you will never be able to say anything specific about each of them unless you have large representative samples. Well, I love that you guys were able to leverage PCARN, do a multi-site national study, and really just help to understand this. And I think it lights a fire under me as an ED provider to help my kids understand, help the families understand that, you know, glucose is brain. Pay attention to it. We can't push this off. We have to take this seriously. Thank you, everyone, for listening with us today. I know I will take hyperglycemia much more seriously because high glucose impacts the brains, the cognition of our patients, and I hope you will too. See you next time.